0: it's just people acting like people really do and for whatever reason that just tickles my fancy when it comes to films
1: welcome to the
2: crooked table podcast where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle and now your host robert yanis jr Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. This is Rob. On this show, we democratize the film criticism conversation by bringing on fans and critics alike to dig into their personal connection to a current or classic release. On this episode, we're going to be talking about the 2000 drama You Can Count On Me, written and directed by Kenneth Lonergan, and I am honored to welcome to the show Dames Marves. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast.
0: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure.
2: So this is a this is a big deal for me because I've had your two co-hosts from CF three on the show, so I'm finally able to uh complete the set. And uh, I know we were, we're two- <laughs> Yeah, exactly. We've been trying to we've been trying to coordinate this uh for a while. And we're always gonna talk about this movie, and we'll get into that in a second. But for people that don't know, tell them a little bit about CF three.
0: Well, CF three is cult films, fans and finds. We were a podcast about 54 episodes in at the time of this recording um, we just interviewed lar park larson from friday the 13th part 7 tonight actually right before um, i joined this call we finished we wrapped that episode it's fantastic she's a childhood crush of mine and my brothers both um but we uh, we specialize in cult films as the other two guys have represented us on here as well and You know, it's funny because I think some of the films that we've done, like Goonies, may not be a cult film. But the first four letters of culture is cult. So that's how I explain it away. I don't know that the other guys would agree with me, but um, it is what it is. And we just have a lot of fun, you know, basically trying to get anybody that will listen to us to to jump on and, and review movies that they were in. And it's worked out really well so far.
2: Yeah, I think I I think I talked with Dane and possibly even Jeff about well, what is what do you what do you all consider a cult movie? But I think it's basically just anything that has a devoted fan base that's really passionate about it, and it helps if it's not particularly in the mainstream, you know. So yeah, any of the the Marvel Cinematic Universe or things like like Star Wars, even things like that. Uh, I don't even know if they would necessarily be. I mean, obviously they have rabid fan bases, but they're so mainstream that it's just become popular culture at that point. It's not even like a cult favorite or anything of that nature. So I know you did a big special episode on The Shining. And then moments ago when we were getting ready for this call, I asked you what your favorite movie was and you said The Shining. So I have to know, what did you think of Dr. Sleep?
0: Well, I went to see Dr. Sleep. I took my family to it, um, to the premiere before it came out, about a week and a half before it came out, maybe a couple weeks before it came out. And, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a book guy, so I didn't follow the books. Right. I didn't. I mean, I know a lot of people, their disconnect from The Shining is it's not as good as the book, et cetera, et cetera. But you have to be able to separate those things. One's a film um, and one's a book. So you can love both without having to hate the other. And I think once people realize that, this movie, um, Dr. Sleep, was a continuation of a movie that didn't follow the book. So we are already in territory for people to hate it because they're going to have to base this script and this film on a movie that didn't follow its original book. Mm -hmm. So I went in knowing that The Shining was my favorite movie of all time. So I, of course, was like building it up in my mind as being incredible. I walked out of that film thinking... I was watching the trailer, and again, I'll try and avoid spoilers here, but I was like, man, I'm watching the trailer, and so much of this stuff seems awesome to me, and so much of it is confusing because I hadn't read the book. And uh, when I walked out of there, I was like, okay. They explained everything in the trailer that I thought was wonky and possibly going to ruin the movie for me. They explained it perfectly and how it fit in. I loved it. I mean, it's not. It, it didn't jump into my top ten or anything like that. Not like the peanut butter falcon did, but uh, it, it it certainly held its own. I bought it right away. I own it, and I'll watch it many times over. The director's cut is actually better than the theatrical version, in gonna, my opinion.
2: I was going to ask that because I saw it in theaters and I loved it also. And I think it does a great job of. It's, so from my understanding, it kind of splits the difference between the you know. Being reverential towards uh, Kubrick's film, but also kind of honoring you know King's book in some ways, and also you know being a, being a sequel to both the book and the movie. and I think it it kind of splits the difference in an interesting way. Um but I was wondering about the directors cut because I actually haven't picked it up on Blu-ray yet, and I've heard it's a vast improvement.
0: yeah, the thing that's actually most fascinating to me about the film was the scenes that there were from the original film. Yeah, were all reshot. the only thing he took from the original film is the blood in the elevator because that's just, why would you, why would you even try to shoot that? But everything else, the kid and the bike and uh, all that stuff, he reshot it and it stands up. I I loved it. I mean, I guess it's not really a spoiler because the book's been out forever, but the people that eat the people that have the shining, that's Mm -hmm. just, I I had no idea that that's where they were going to go with Rose the hat. Um, cause like I said, I hadn't read the books and I was extremely happy with how it all went down. Yeah. So, Ian yeah, McGregor it, was a great casting choice as well.
2: I thought it was really, it, it, I think it, it built upon the shining in interesting ways, but also did very much its own thing. Like it doesn't, you know, it's not treading any of the, the same ground, but expanding on it. And like you said, the whole thing with them kind of, they call it steam when they're yeah. Uh, like, yeah, absorbing the, the, I guess, energy, from people with the shine and that scene with Jacob Tremblay, not to get into too many spoilers. That's so intense. Um, it, yeah, it was really good. I thought, I, I thought Mike Flanagan did a great job with it. And I think we both encourage people to definitely check that out. Cause it unfortunately oh, okay. did really bad at the box office. Like it was a huge kind of bomb, which is, I don't know people, they didn't market it properly. If it's like a birds of prey situation where people didn't know what they were, what the movie was exactly, or, or what the deal was. Would you have any theories on that?
0: I mean, I kind of like it. I kind of like the fact that it bombed, honestly. It'll be a cool
2: movie. You guys can cover it someday.
0: Well, think about this. I told you my second favorite movie of all time was The Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. And that was a box office failure. Very true. It did not come into prevalence until it hit home video. So, I mean, maybe there's something to that. I I guess I don't really care what the majority likes. Like, I loved it, and I I got it.
1: Mm -hmm. It's
0: there for me, so... You know, shame on the people that didn't go see it. I in a, guess
2: in a way, it might have a, a longer shelf life this way. Like you're like you're saying, people will discover it yeah. as opposed to, you know, I, what's the what's until recently, what was the biggest movie of all time? Avatar. How many times have people generally gone back and rewatched Avatar? People like chomping at the bit for the seventeen <laughs> Avatar sequels that James Cameron's is right. working right. on. You know, so right. I think there's something there's something to that, and in that people want to take ownership of something that they're discovering in their own way, as opposed to having studios cram it down their throat. You need to see this in theaters. It's an experience. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, yeah, I, t- I think that feels like a kind of a decent transition because you can count on me. It's a very small movie and it did well in theaters, but it wasn't like a box office sensation by any means. Um, so then we transition over to that and listen to a little bit of the trailer right now. I got a postcard from you
1: from Alaska? Yeah, yeah, I was out there for a little while. That was in the fall, Terry. I was in jail for a little while. What? Maybe you should stay home for a while. Yeah, maybe that'd be a good idea. I got a hundred bucks here. Says me and my
2: nephew can beat anybody in here. Only we got to get the next game because he's got to be in bed by 10 o'clock.
1: doing taking him to play pool in the middle of the night and then telling him to lie to me about it
0: there's
2: nothing to do here it's a dull narrow town full of dull narrow people what are you talking about
0: i have no idea
2: you're a very important person to rudy and you are the most important person to me
0: a lot of people come to see me with all kinds of problems drugs alcohol marital problems sexual problems Great job you yeah, have, man well i like it that was a little bit
2: of the trailer for You Can Count on Me, written and directed by Kenneth Lonergan from 2000. So, Dames, tell me, what what is it about this movie that connects to you so much that you you knew as soon as we talked about having you on the show, you're like, well, you can count on me. Earmark me for that one.
0: Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I, I knew you were going to ask me this question, and I honestly, it's a brother-sister story. I don't have a sister, mm-hmm. so I don't have that connection. They lose their parents in the first two minutes of the movie, I have both my parents um, so I really I honestly can't tell you on an emotional level why this movie has connected with me but I can tell you the kind of movies that are I am drawn to are people's stories that are just a section of people's lives like if you watch this film it's just a section of these people's lives and their story there's no explosions there's no cgi or special gimmicks it's just a story and those right. are the types of movies that just i mean they crush me when, when especially when you know things happen throughout the course of that part of the story but i mean i, I honestly i don't know what it is that makes me love this movie. i mean i can tell you a million things why i love this movie but the overall reason that i love this movie i i i'm still searching for that answer myself
2: I think it's there's something to be said. About, I think about the sibling bond because you know I also have both my parents and I don't have a sister either. But I, I, there's something very true about that relationship that you have even when you're like can't stand your sibling, you still love them. So there's like that that complicated nature of there that I think the movie captures really well. Uh, and yeah. it's also I noticed just in the beginning of the movie um, that like certain details like that I I thought were really interesting like like um when we're cutting to Sammy's you know office and like the the stickers on the on the um on the door are like slightly ajar and like the the dialogue is very realistic and the performances are very natural you know that's there's there's a certain there's a certain uh like fly on the wall element to it that that it doesn't feel stylized at all it just like you said it feels like a slice of life of these people and it just feels grounded in a way that a lot of movies don't as far as the relationships and and nothing's really heightened or exaggerated. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. So I actually have an example of something that I'd like to point out that I believe is a perceived flaw in the film, which you don't normally find in something that you have rated as your third favorite film of all time. But because it is, I can, I can bring this up. When I first saw this movie, the opening scene it's it seems so writery to me
1: mm-hmm.
0: like the the two parents are in the car and the first thing that happens is the mom looks at the dad and says why is it that they give a teenage girl braces at the very time that she's most self-conscious right like that to me is like the the writer's gratuity like he's like telling you i'm smarter than you I'm gonna write this clever line, and then they're gonna die in a fiery car crash. Mm-hmm. And I just always thought that was like, I was like, I'm gonna hate this movie when I first saw that. But I did not know what was gonna come after that, obviously. So I always look at that and I'm, I laugh because I, I love it and I don't like it at the same time. Mm-hmm. But do you, do you feel what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah, like, it, it's sort of. Almost, I'm a
2: smart writer. It's sort of yeah, it's sort of showboaty. and I think in a way, kind of. I don't know if maybe slightly emotionally, emotionally manipulative. It's that in that it, it's, you know, trying to hook you with these parents and it's like, Nope, just kidding. They're dead now. Let's move on. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I think there's, there's, you know, probably an argument some people could make about Lonergan's movies that they are kind of that, have that emotional, you know, manipulation to them. I, I've never seen Margaret, but I have seen Manchester by the sea and both this and that movie deal like with very heavy fallout from tragedy uh, in, in this, it's the car crash and the parents and that it's, you know, what happened with his, uh, his family and everything. So, or his kids. So I think it's, yeah, there's, there's, there's a universal, universal experience there in the, in that he's trying to, that he's trying to get at with the tragedy, the tragedy, tragedy, I can't talk the tragedy element of it. And I think that, um, yeah, I, I feel you. I think that, that that's a legitimate kind of criticism and, But I I give him points immediately after for the misdirection where the cops show up at the door. And you think like I at least thought that that was Laura Linney's character, but it's actually the babysitter. Little things like that. Right. Or the the music kind of cutting over the funeral because we don't you know, we don't really need to hear what they say. It's just kind of mundane bullshit. Just like a few minutes later, she's talking to... uh, Laura Linney's character, Sammy, is talking to Matthew Broderick, and she's talking about her son. And he's like, "That's a terrific age." It's like that—the kind of right. boring bullshit things that people say each other that really kind of mean nothing, just to fill silence, basically. And and I think yeah. that those kinds of things are Lonergan is so good at.
0: I agree. I love his casting choices and everything. Like the first thing that strikes me is like an amazing aspect of acting in this film is when the cop shows up at the door and he mm-hmm. can't say anything. He just looks at her and like the look on his face says, and he says more than any of the words he could say, uh, possibly could. So, I mean that alone at the very beginning, I'm like, all right, all right, I'm back in. Yeah. And then you see the kids blurry, the little curly head, dark haired kid and this blonde girl blurry in the background. That, that's another nice touch. Mm
1: hmm.
2: Yeah. I love, I love the way he handles that, that kind of stuff. And then of course we jump, you know, we jump significantly there like what, 30 years later or 25 years later, whatever. And they're grown up. And, and let's talk about Laura Linney in this movie, who Oscar nominated by the way, as, as was the screenplay. Yeah. Uh, this was a, this was probably a, a huge career moment for her. I mean, this was, I think her, I don't know if she's gotten any other Oscar nominations since then. I feel like she did get another one for Kinsey or something. Um, yeah. but, but let's talk about her performance in the, in this movie and how obviously Sammy, you know, we start off and it's just like a small town and she's like a good mom and she's trying to do her best. And the character is revealed as the movie goes on to be very, yes, tender and, and very delicate in her relationship and her connection with her son and her connection with her brother, which we'll get to in a second, but is also very complex and sort of self-sabotaging and things like that. So let's talk a little about what, you know, her performance in this and the way that they give such depth to that character.
0: Sure. So some of the depth that you're talking about clearly shows in the fact that she basically would have been his mother figure Mm -hmm. growing up and how he took that for granted, you know, as you're not my mom, you know, he did a great job and he still kind of looks at her as a, a motherly type of character, but then how different their paths went because of that. Um, I mean, that's a story that's told inside of the story and it's another layer of depth that just adds brilliance to this screenplay.
2: Yeah. And it's, it's basically, I think, I think Lonergan's is trying to show two different reactions to the, the tragedy that they, they suffered. One just like locks in place as like neurotic and, and, you know, not controlling, but I guess, yeah, I guess kind of controlling and like trying to get, you know, a handle of the situation and make the best of it and put on a smile And the other one just rebels and just goes off doing his own thing, getting, you know, from one job to the next, getting in, you know, bar fights, ending up in prison and all this other stuff and kind Mm -hmm. of rebelling against everything. So it's like she leans into it, into being stuck in this town and he just goes the opposite route. And I think that's that's very true. That's very, you know, everybody has a different way that they react to things. And and the movie, even though it is kind of ham handedly, you know, shoehorning in the uh, the car crash in the beginning it it just underlines everything else and and it doesn't even really come up often in conversation in that the way that they they're dealing with everything with the you know their relationship with each other and the people in their lives I think it comes up a couple of times it's specifically in the diner where he says something yeah. about like I miss mom and she's like yeah no one knows what to do with you and and that whole thing and that's where you're like you were saying that's where her being kind of the mother figure comes in where she's immediately like um you know scolding him for, you were in jail? And, like, they're having a big argument about it and he feels like he has to explain himself and he hates that he he feels like he has to explain himself. But at the same time, she's so eager for a connection with her brother, the only person that understands the pain that she's going through, that she, like, gets all dressed up and she, like, takes the day off work and she makes it, like, a big event telling everybody that she knows that he's coming to town uh, because she's, they're they're, you know, they're pushing each other away in some ways, but they're also, like, they're they're the only people that they can they, they really need in their lives I guess
0: exactly and i I notice you know maybe an underlying resentment in the fact that she's settled down and stable and he's he sees that and resents that and she resents the fact that she's the one that was settled down and stable so that he could go out and be this crazy wild guy experiencing the world so. I mean, those are real things that happen to real people Mm -hmm. all the time. And I just think, I think the world of, uh, how he was able to write that and how they were able to act it.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. And then she's got her, her boyfriend kind of Bob. Bob. (laughs) She's she's (laughs) only like when she's sitting around and she, you know, she's horny or she's bored. She's like, I wonder what Bob's up to. And that like, there's not really, she's like, I, I think she's afraid of making a legitimate emotional connection with anyone basically um just because she's so she's so locked into like this protective mode and and meanwhile he just feels like he has to constantly prove himself I mean his first scene I wrote down here that he's like he's telling uh Sheila who we find out later tried to kill herself that he's like I'm not the kind of guy everyone says I am and and I feel like that's a good transition into Mark Ruffalo who again him really made like Laura Linney had been in things before this she was in like the Truman show and like if people remember Congo (laughs) movies like that, but Mark Ruffalo, like this was his big breakthrough. This was before way before, obviously the Marvel stuff and spotlight and 13 going on 30 and all that other, all the other hit movies he was in. This was his big like announcement to the world. And what a, what a performance for him showing up in this
0: dude. (laughs) You're not even kidding. I think if he would have done anything else of significance before this, he's also up for an Oscar for this. Mm hmm. Um, and I'll just tell you um, a little bit about how I feel about Mark Ruffalo. Like, to me, she's great. He steals the show in this movie. And in a testament to his acting, I, there was a movie called Shutter Island. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, where he was with uh, DiCaprio. And in that film, I remember watching it the first time. And it's, you know, it's a twister, right? Yeah. Uh, you don't know what's going on through the film. I was thinking, watching that movie, I'm like, Dude, Mark Ruffalo is one of the greatest actors in the known universe, and he's blowing it in this film. But then you find out at mm-hmm. the end of that film <laughs> that he was an act—he was acting uh, the whole time, and he's not an—he a- was acting as not an actor. So of course, the performance is going to be stilted because he was playing somebody that he, you know, wasn't as a non-actor. And I was just like, oh my god, he's the fucking greatest actor <laughs> ever. So I mean, I. I Yeah, I love Mark Ruffalo and the scene where she comes in and she's like, maybe you should stay, you know, for, and he just starts crying Mm -hmm. right there. Yeah. I mean, I, I break down there every time. And it's just one of those things that I feel is so real in that movie. Um, Yeah. So I can't say enough about Mark Ruffalo. You're spot on with, with your assessment of his performance in this film.
2: Even like little touches, like um, when he's walking up to the diner and Sammy's inside, the, the, the cinematography—it's like shot through the window, like from his perspective. So you feel him literally on the outside looking in. And little things like that really helps you understand where he's coming from and how how he has has dealing with his own sense of of guilt and and uh, it's it's just a g- genius performance. And he makes a lot of Terry makes a lot of terrible decisions in the movie, but that's the thing—they both do. And he, yeah. even when he's doing, you know, stupid things, taking his nephew out, like, to a bar to, like, hustle him of um on playing pool and things like that, I, I, you, you're with him. You're, like, you're still on his side. and You know that he's not. Everything is coming from, a, like, he's got a good heart and he's trying to do the right thing. But he's also emotionally stunted in a way. And he's never really matured uh, from, in some ways, from when his parents passed away and just dealing with that trauma. Right. It's a, yeah, right, he's, exactly right. he's just so great in that uh, the scene with them in the diner I keep going back to that but that's like such a showcase for the two of them and the the way that they play off of each other and how when he starts to talk about oh well I ran into some trouble and you can see the expression on her face that she's already crushed like she knows what's about to come and then the walls come up and she's like what do you need money that whole thing ah uh, so great I just feel like we could yeah. just gush about that one scene over and over I keep I going will. back to it
0: I will comment on that scene specifically when you are uncomfortable watching that scene.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, that's a perfect Testament to how great the scene is because it is extremely uncomfortable. He's like shuffling looking. She's like, are you expecting someone? He's like, who would I be expecting? And she's like, I don't know. You're looking around. He's like, I was just hoping maybe get a beverage, you know? And yeah. And then she just looks at him like, all right, what's going on? And then he finally breaks down and tells her, you know, and it's just, it's so uncomfortable to watch. So that to me, it, it, you're right. It is one of the pinnacle scenes, if not the pinnacle scene yeah. of the film.
2: And it's and it's not that he doesn't love his sister or love his nephew. It's that he's just, I think his thing is that he's so scared of of putting himself out there because of what happened with his parents that he's just like, no, no, I'm just going to come here. I'm going to get what I need. I'm going to get the hell out and keep rolling down that hill wherever it may take me. And, and I think, um, yeah, and it it's... It's great. It's a great scene. I feel like we should move yeah. on to something else, but there's a lot to touch on. Right, yeah, yeah. Cause then she's like, do you ever go to church anymore? And then that whole thing where he's, she's just trying to help him put down roots, which is the exact thing he doesn't want to do.
0: <laughs> uh, no, Sammy, I don't. Why? <laughs> yeah. Because I think it's ridiculous. <laughs> <sighs> so I great. mean, yeah, it's, it's a great scene. One of, one of the ones in great scenes in cinematic history.
2: Yeah, I I by all rights he should have been at least nominated for this. Uh, but we should probably also talk about Matthew Broderick who is about as as a far away from Ferris Bueller obviously his most famous role as possible. And apparently he was childhood friends with Kenneth Monaghan. He was the first one on the project and um you know he, he he was signed on for this before anybody else. So what did what did you think about I guess when the first time you saw this, what did you think about Matthew Broderick's kind of uh, I, again, he's also an election, which is a, I guess I told you before yeah. we we'll recall the double disc, the, the double DVD that I got this on. Um, so let's talk about Matthew Broderick in this a little.
0: Yeah. So when I first saw the movie did not know about the connection. I do now clearly, but I thought that he was the, the stunt actor thrown in just to get people to pay attention. Mm. Um, now, obviously, his performance uh, lent more to it than that. Do I think that he's the only one that could play that role? I do not.
1: Right.
0: Um, as far as the importance to the film goes, you have, in my opinion, it goes Mark Ruffalo, Laura Linney, and then uh, the, the kid. Rory Sorry, Culkin, Rory yeah, The, the Rory youngest Culkin. of
2: the three big Culkins.
0: I think those three... Or what make it go. Mm-hmm. Everybody else um, could be manipulated. I wouldn't do it because I love how the film ultimately ended up. But um yeah. Matthew Broderick, departure for him. Uh, we already mentioned the scene where he's like, you know, kinda like tells her, I prefer you find another way to, to get your son to and from. And then he's like, Oh, how old is he? Oh, he's eight. Oh, what a great age. Like <laughs> you could just they cut to her rel- and she's just like you prick like but like the look on her face is just like wow this is unbelievable um, but yeah i mean he's he's great
2: i feel like casting him matthew. i feel like casting him is is sort of the movie kind of lulling us into oh matthew broderick he, he's always plays a uh a, a kind of you know upbeat kind of nicer nice guy kind of thing in in movies i'm sure he's gonna you know be uh be an ally to sammy and nope nope not really not so much (laughs) he's in this movie has an antagonist that isn't their own inner demons it's probably him because he's one of the i'd say the most or if not one of the only unsympathetic characters in the movie where you're like i don't there's not much from that character that you're like oh i understand where he's coming from he's just like yeah i'm gonna take advantage of this situation i'm gonna yeah, you know, I'm going to use that. I mean, I guess you have a little bit of sympathy for him because it seems like his wife really hates him. But then every time we see him, he's kind of a dick. See, so I guess we understand.
0: <laughs> I don't know. See, my take on him, him in this film is, once I saw the relationship between he and his wife, was that he, his character was trying to create a sexual tension in the office mm-hmm. from the moment they got there. And perhaps, that's why he ended up having to leave his previous job. Mm, yeah, that's a good point. I, I mean, those are just thoughts that I had because, I mean, there's no hesitation on his part once it gets there. And then he's all about it and wanting to keep going, calling her, you know, while his wife's sitting right next to him, you know. It's mm-hmm. just, uh, like, to me, it feels like he was the instigator and he he had the plan to do that all along. Maybe it wasn't with her specifically, but he was going to get somebody involved in that situation so maybe that's that's just one take sure
2: yeah no that that makes sense he does he does immediately start pushing her buttons as soon as he can and trying to like twist the the, uh yeah twist the situation and and um i don't know really micromanaging in, in a in a very obnoxious kind of way um i also like i wanted to point out like again with the misdirection he there's that part where She's freaking out, and she 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 asked Terry to pick uh to pick her son up from school, and we think he he didn't show up and then it could the camera like pans over and he's sitting there in the car little things like that again, we're short of the movie's toying with our expectations of where we think it's gonna go, and i I love that like it's always one step ahead of where we would assume or how we would assume these characters are like, cause our all natural inclination is to want to put them into little boxes. Like, Oh, this is this, this guy is the rebel and this guy, and you know, this is, you know, whatever. And, and I think this whole point of the movie is to blur those lines to the point that we're like, wow, everybody's fucked up in different ways. Uh, which again, to your point is real, how real life is, is how people really are. It's everybody's dealing with, yep. uh, whatever baggage that they have in their past.
0: Yep. I think one of my favorite scenes is when he takes the kid to the bar and then tells them not to, uh, not to tell and mm-hmm. they, they get caught on the stairs. He, he's like, hey, we just lost track of time. <laughs> this is just the way he says it. And then they start laughing. He's like, you were a bad kid. <laughs> the interaction between Mark Ruffalo and uh, Rory Culkin is what makes his performance go to me. Like I can't get enough of that. Yeah. Yeah,
2: it's like we were we were out stargazing. I think he said.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah,
2: and it's like, and she buys it for a while too. She's like, "Oh, did did uh, your uncle show you, you know, this constellation or whatever?"
0: <laughs> and the kid
2: lies. He's like,
0: "Yeah, we saw that one."
2: Oh, and it's so yeah. heartbreaking later on where where he get like blows up at at the kid because he uh, he assumes that he
0: ratted him out to his mom. Yeah. Ugh. It's a great scene. I mean I, I it's it's heartbreaking, but I also laugh because he kinda hits him once he's out of the car. He hits him like real quick. Yeah. And I don't know, hitting kids isn't funny, but for whatever reason, that's funny to me. Well, I think um just how he does it. I think in a way it's because
2: as, as we were saying, Terry is so emotionally stunted that, that it's kind of like one kid hitting another, like uh eh. Yeah. I'm mad at you right now. That kind of thing, like it, it reads that way, which is why it, yeah. you know, it never comes across. Even when he's yelling at him, it doesn't really feel like child abuse or anything serious. It's just like, ah, these two friends are having a spat. <laughs> never mind, one's like 35 or whatever right. he's supposed to be, and right. one is like 10. You know, cause he, there are moments where he's trying to be a good uncle. He like puts a seatbelt on him. He like try, he's trying to look out for him, but he yeah. doesn't, he's not emotionally equipped for the job, I guess. That's what I'm saying.
0: Right. So, I mean, that whole okay. true the whole seatbelt thing, <laughs> his parents died, died in the car wreck, yeah. So I mean, it would make sense that he would try and get the kid to wear his
2: Right. Exactly. I love the, the conversation there where he's like, Oh, you know, my, uh, <laughs> my um my mom's you know my mom's her parents died. Right. And he's like yeah that was, they were my parents too. She's oh, yeah. my sister. Yeah exactly. Uh that's <laughs> that's funny. I love it. And he's like and then that and then Mark Ruffalo does the oh yeah kind of with the eyes while he's right. driving. Great great stuff. Um let's see. Uh and apparently you know Sammy was really wild and kind of like the uh, that conversation at the table. Uh do we want to talk about. Uh, her relationship with, like, I guess the the whatever triangle there is with Sammy and Brian and uh, Bob, at all? Yeah. Let's talk. Let's get into that. So, where what is your? I guess what is kind of your read of that situation? Why she is handling it the way she is? And I I, I, I just feel bad for Bob in this situation. Like he's such right. a poor Bob. Poor Bob, pretty much is like the big takeaway from this movie. It's like he really cares about her, and she's like, eh. eh. No, I don't need you right now. I'm good. When I when I when I'm in the mood, I'll I'll call you up for a basically, you know, a booty call essentially, so I can feel good about myself. What what are your your thoughts on that whole thing and how she's just really yeah. good at complicating her own life basically.
0: Poor Bob's the pushover. He yeah. uh his introduction into the film is clearly they've been away from each other for some time and he calls she calls him up to get advice um about a situation and that situation is Rudy wants to write a story about his dad. And so he's like, comes across as the not emotionally supportive cause he has no idea what to say. And like, all she wants is for him to tell her what to do. And he just says, I'll, I'm happy to give it some thought. She's like, okay. Like you can tell her disappointment in that answer, So while Bob is in love with her, he never says the right thing for her because what she needs from him, he's not capable because he's not close enough to the situation on a regular basis to Mm -hmm. be able to give an analysis. Right. So Bob's biggest problem is the fact that he's not as involved as he wants to be, and he can't be because she won't let him, but she requires the information as if he were. And that is Bob's, the whole crux of Bob's problem throughout the thing, because he still remains supportive. Even though he doesn't know what to do, he's willing to do whatever. Um, but he just doesn't have the answers on the, on the drop of a hat. So she keeps repeatedly coming to him. And then when he puts the pressure on her of marriage, that's when she had too much and she decides, um, maybe she doesn't decide, but allows herself to be manipulated by Brian as, a way to be like, oh, well, I was going to marry you, but, you know, I had an affair with my boss. Yeah. So she's going to use that as a scapegoat later on down the road so that he doesn't want to marry her anymore. I mean, it all comes together quite clearly, um to me at least, uh, how that situation arose.
2: Right. Yeah, you can't have have Bob check in with Bob like once a month and be like, what do you think, Bob? Like, I don't know what the hell's going on, dude. Um, <laughs> Right. Yeah. It's yeah. It's it's once again. It's it's her way of kind of pushing people away too, and keeping them at an at an arm's length. And you know, she goes to see see the priest to kind of confess. uh, What is you know? It's I think it's even in the trailer. She's like, "What is the church's uh, stance on on (laughs) adultery?" And he's like, "Mm, "We're against it." And she's like, looking looking. She's looking for a way out from a situation that she she's I mean, it's, it's a weird it's a weird form of self-sabotage it's just like she wants someone to you know she wants a sense of belonging she wants to kind of you know that connection but then she doesn't want it she, she think she wants to continue you know continue running her household unopposed she wants she's gotten very kind of set in her ways i think in the way that she's raising her son and i think she in a way wants to not have to parent both Rudy and Terry. But in a way, I think she gets kind of maybe gets off on the power trip of it too.
0: Yeah. And I I feel like maybe if Bob made a mistake, it's the fact that he saw her reaching out and he, rather than let it go over a length of time before proposing, he latched on before she could put distance between them again. Mm -hmm. And maybe he, I mean, there's no maybe about it. Obviously they've had years of history and she's like, you know, two years ago I would have said yes, but I mean, the fact that he jumped in after like maybe one or once or twice seeing her, after all that time, might have been his downfall as well.
1: Hmm.
2: And th- with Sammy and her love life, we get that great what other one of the great Sammy Terry scenes outside where they're I think they're drinking a beer <laughs> and they're, they're yes. the heart to heart, heart to heart and she's like I fucked my boss and he's like freaking out on her and that's a oh that's God. a great moment too. <laughs> yeah
0: holy shit, Sammy.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and if he's saying it, then you know it's it's legit. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> um and then even he he like he tries to be the the sort of the man of the house in a way cuz he feels bad about her calling the plumber and he's trying to do things himself. He's trying to prove himself useful, I guess, and try and like earn his keep, I guess, in a way. But uh again, he's not he's not equipped for it. This is basically a movie about a bunch of people trying to do stuff that they're not emotionally
0: prepared to do, I think. Right. Um, And that goes down to the, even when he takes the kid to see his father, he forces his father into a situation he's not emotionally equipped to handle. Like he had no idea they're coming there. Maybe circumstances would have been different had he, you know, called him or had any idea that they were coming to see him. Right. But that would, that would jolt anybody, I would think. For
2: sure. For sure. And, and again, I think in Terry's mind, he's trying to shock Rudy into realizing his father's an asshole and that he's better off without him. But it goes about it a completely the wrong way. Uh, Yeah. And to see Josh Lucas in there, which was kind of random um, playing uh, Rudy senior.
0: Yeah. He looks just like the kid though. Yeah, he does. I mean, I I see him and I'm like, how could you say that's not your kid? That's your (laughs) kid. (laughs) Like,
2: Rudy, meet like, Rudy. Yeah, literally. Um, yeah, it's and that. That becomes a whole, and and that becomes really the I think the final straw. Where I think I I watched a featurette, and I believe it was Kenneth Lonergan himself who said something about writing a story about a woman torn between saving her brother and protecting her son. And I think that's really where it comes down to. Well, you've got you've got to go because obviously I need to do what's best for my my child, so I can't. I can't kind of save both of you at the same time. I have to, you know, I have to choose essentially. And it puts her in this kind of difficult situation of, of her, her child and her man, child brother. And, and them trying to, I guess, sort of heal each other in, in a way. But, um, uh, because you even have earlier in the movie where like Terry is, um, uh, he's mad at, at Rudy. So he is, he goes back on planning to take him fishing and then at the last minute he shows up. It's kind of again emotionally, he like Terry's being emotionally manipulative in that moment where he's like, no, I'm going to hold this back. And then when I come, when I bring it back at the end, it's kind of I'll, I'll kind of paint myself as kind of a, a savior in a way. You know what I mean? It's like he sets his own he sets the own expect his own expectations of how other people see him. But he's constantly, I guess, selling himself short. What are your, what is your kind of thoughts on that?
0: Well, I think the answer to that question is all in the look. On Laura Linney's face when she's standing on the church steps, and he mm. pulls up and he puts the fishing pole out. I mean, she's just like, "I'm do we cuss on this podcast?" I, I should. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh that. yeah,
2: I did a few times. Go. She's for
0: like, it. just the look on her face. She's standing right next to the preacher who's played by Kenneth Lonergan. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah, Lonergan, and uh, it's just like, you motherfucker! <laughs> like, <laughs> like she's happy that he's doing it, but she's like, only in only Terry. Can get away with this manipulation, right? Where it's okay now. It's you know it's two o'clock in the afternoon. All the fish are not going to be biting. This should have happened you know hours ago. But since Terry decided, she's like I I can't tell my kid no because I know that will crush him. Mm-hmm. I can't lecture Terry because he's finally come around to do what I ultimately wanted him to do. But she's like, just a look on her face answers your question. Yeah, me. she's
2: kind of trapped in that moment. For sure. Yeah. So you mentioned Kenneth Lonergan playing the priest. I, I he has one of the, the best scenes as well. I mean, we keep saying that a lot. I guess that's a testament yeah. to how, how strong this, the the film is that this every other moment every other scene is like one of the best scenes. But he's got that great sort of uh I think it's kind of a monologue to them about uh about trying to kind of feel Terry out about his religious beliefs and all this other stuff. Where he says, uh, I'm looking it up on IMDb and he's like, uh He's talking about his his job. A lot of people come to see me with all kinds of problems, drugs, alcohol, blah blah. blah. And he's like, "Great job you got." And then he's talking about like, um, "I like it." <laughs> yeah, I like it. That kind of thing. I I love all this stuff. And Terry, uh, it's telling him he's like, "I don't think, I don't particularly think anybody's life has any particular importance besides whatever whatever we arbitrarily give it, which is fine." And he goes on about like kind of feeling hopeless, like all of it, it all means something and doesn't mean anything at the same time. And I think that, again, is really just him kind of crying out for uh, a home, basically, in a way. And I, and I think that the movie is ultimately about the two of them finding that with each other, because as I said, sort of at the top of the show, they don't, no one know, no one will understand. Yes, you know, if people. even people that have had tragedy understand where what they've gone through, but no one is in their shoes but them. And no one experienced that, that shared loss than, that they do. And I think that's maybe ultimately that's about what about this movie appeals to both of us having siblings is that we we get that. Like we both, you know, we, uh, you siblings were born you know, to the same parents. They're raised in ultimately, you know, more or less the same environment. And you nobody's going to see the world from a similar perspective as you are because you were... You came from, literally came from the exact same place and you experienced throughout your formative, formative years almost everything kind of exactly the same. You react to it differently, like the movie goes into it. But I think it's that, that that bond that even though Terry and Sammy are so, such different people, that connects them and holds them together.
0: Yeah. I, to me, that scene, the one you were talking about, it resonates for me because... I pretty much am philosophically, philosophically the same as Terry mm-hmm. in that regard where he's like, I don't know. A lot, a lot of what you're saying has real appeal to me. A lot of the stuff they told us when we were kids, but I don't want to believe in something or not believe in it. Cause I might feel bad. Like to me, that, that just sums up so much of Terry's existence. I mean, I didn't live the life Terry lived, but and he's like, I want to believe in it because it's true or not. And then he's like, I want to think my life's important or connected to something and then Ron says, well, isn't there a way for you to believe that without calling it God or religion or whatever it is that you object to? And then he's like, Shit, yeah, I guess I believe that. Yeah. Yeah. Like that—that that is a perfect ending to that um, that scene.
2: Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, and, and so many of these scenes, like even standalone are just not only – Showing off what Ruffalo and Linney can do, but they they feel like their own their own sort of standalone statements in a way, and I think that seems the perfect example. actually, on one of the again, on the special features, I think they say that this m- movie started as a one act play. That lunch scene that we were talking about earlier, that was the like the one act play that was like all centered on that. And I think that's probably why that scene kind of encapsulates everything that this movie is trying to say in a way.
0: So good. Like, yeah, it's great. They could have used any of these clips for, for their Oscar p- clips. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like when they showed the little clip before they announced the winner, like any of these scenes. <laughs> yeah. Just fantastic. Like when he's talking to the kid in the bedroom, he's like, what are you talking about? He's, I have no idea. <laughs> he just went on this long, long rant. <laughs> yeah. Good stuff. Like, did you find yourself laughing a lot? Like, this is not a comedy, by any stretch. But I, I find myself laughing a lot at the things Terry does and says, even the stuff that uh, that Laura Linney's character does.
2: Oh yeah, she was, she was um, making. As we sort of alluded to, she was. Some of her decisions were so maddening. Then I'm just watching, like, what is happening? What why are you doing this right now? Leave Bob alone. <laughs> First of all. Uh poor Bob needs to find someone that'll appreciate him and uh and you know, get his own life. Um, but no, yeah, I agree with you because Ruffalo's character is so all over the place that you you can't help but kind of empathize with him and uh and you know laugh along with his reactions with him and the and the kid because it is that is that is so much the focus of the movie like it's as much about him and his nephew as it is about him and his sister. And uh to your point about how it's not a comedy, I think you know Jerry Maguire is one of my favorite movies because it's a comedy but it's not a comedy. Like the most realistic genre of movies are these sort of comedy drama hybrids because that's that's what real life is. There's no aliens, there's yeah. no superheroes, there's no you know, like, uh, you know, slashers or anything in real life general. I mean, there are, but not, not, uh, superheroes or aliens, but like, there are like, you know, things, elements of those that are in real life sometimes, but generally life is more like this. It's more kind of mundane people making shitty decisions, but trying to do the best with the, with the hand that they're dealt. And I think that that's refreshing to see on screen. It's, Especially when this kind of low to mid budgeted film is feel like you don't like you have to really kind of hunt them down now. They're they're not they're not um, they're not making as much of these kinds of movies. I guess. Dude, as their, as you, to- you're
0: preaching to the choir. Drama is by far my favorite genre of film, and like most people that know me, they would never guess that because they would be like, "Oh, he's a comedy guy, or he's a horror guy," because I'm in the podcast. But right. honestly, this is the this is the most difficult movie type to pull off and get right is tell a piece of someone's life story and jerry Maguire is another perfect example uh, of of someone doing that masterfully
1: mm-hmm. i
0: mean like peanut butter falcon i know that we talked about that earlier if you and if you ever want to do that i'm, I'm yeah
2: absolutely no, I got you game
0: that for that but that's i mean those are life their are life stories they don't hinge on explosives or cgi or any, you know, manipulation of, wow, look what we can do.
2: Right. Yeah. Because you're seeing life, literally seeing life from the, from a perspective, that's not your own, but there's always these universal truths that anybody can connect to. Like you, you would under, like, as we were saying, we don't, we've all, we both have our parents, we don't have sister, but we have these connections. There's, there's elements of this film that we, we're emotionally latching onto. And that's why I think, you know, it resonates so uh, so heavily with with you specifically, and um, yeah, I think it's 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 a it's a really good it's a great movie, and it it's does a lot with a with a very relatively small. I mean, this is this movie was only made for like a million dollars, and it it made like nine, I think, domestically, which is a huge profit. But again, it's not the kind of movie that people will. Necessarily talk about it in the same way, if, if unless people like us keep talking about it, I guess. In um, and that, and it wasn't even like I said, it wasn't even streaming anywhere. And now I think it's it's on Prime. But when I went to watch it for the podcast, it wasn't streaming anywhere that I had to seek out a DVD copy of it. And I think that's also a testament to the importance of physical media, too. By
0: the way, yes, because I can pass it around to anybody. Exactly, I tell about it. Yeah, you know, you, I've, I've shown this film to like ten or fifteen people.
1: Yeah, yeah, so.
2: yeah. You don't have to worry about um, about You're know, having a Wi-Fi connection, or whether Netflix's licensing deal all of a sudden expires and things like that. So that's why, yeah, I you really inspired to go and pick up Doctor Sleep on Blu-ray now that we're talking about physical media, and we talked about that movie earlier. Um, just a few more things I wanted to go talk about here. Uh, I, I did sure. like I did think the thing with Mabel and like the bizarre neon colors on her screen. I did think that was funny as well. And that's actually Kenneth Lonergan's wife playing Mabel. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That was
2: super interesting.
0: Um, And that was her idea um, to to have that part in there for the, the screens.
2: Really? That's good. I didn't hear that part. I didn't get a chance to listen to the commentary, but I would love, I probably need to go back and do that. I'd love to hear what he has to say about this. Uh, Let's see. Martin Scorsese also was executive producer and really kind of, I think, safeguarded uh, Lonergan's vision so that he could do tell the story the way he wanted. Um, And of course I wanted to talk about the, the goodbye scene with the two of them out by the, I think it's out by the car, right? Yeah. Where they don't even, they don't even like he is Lonergan is so low key with, with his, uh, with his storytelling that, they don't even, like, I was expecting them to say the line, the the titular line of the movie, and they don't even say that. Yeah. You know, it's implied, and we get it, and we don't need it spelled out for us. It's not like, you know, um, it's not like every movie where they you're waiting for that. There's a family guy joke. I used to watch Family Guy, not for a long time, but there's a family guy joke where he's like, I think Peter Griffin says something like, oh, you know, it's like that scene in the movie where... Where you know they say the name of the movie, and I forget what it is and <laughs> and it's and then you cut to like him in a movie theater, and I forget what movie he was playing, and he's like, "I ah, he said it or whatever and like Lonergan doesn't even like indulge in that kind of cliche in this, and I thought that was really you know it was a really classy way of of ending the movie and tying it together, where both of them now recognize how important they are to each other's lives, and you you believe they think that they're they're gonna be they're gonna try and be better. With each other to each other I mean what do you where do you kind of see their story going on from here after the credits roll
0: honestly I think it's more of the exact same really? that we've been through because keep in, keep in mind this is just a section that's of true. their existence it's been going on this way for thirty years I mean what 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 happened in this time frame that's going to change any of that I mean, he constantly has been disappointing her for the last 30 years. Do we, do we think he's all of a sudden reformed? I honestly don't. I think he's the same Terry um, that he was throughout the whole movie. And that, that's, I mean, that's life. Yeah, We don't always change. You know what I mean? And I think that the fact that you said that neither one of them said you can count on me in the film, they didn't need to because it, it's implied that they both are saying it. Mm -hmm. which gives us satisfaction. But I mean, if I'm being honest, he's still going to be a fuck up on down the road. And he's talking about, Oh, we'll get together for Christmas. He's saying that because that's what she needs to hear.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And she's still not, you know, with Bob that wasn't resolved a hundred percent. She's like, Oh, we'll, we'll talk about it was the last real thing. And then she called him up again when the kid was, uh, you know, taken by the police when Mark Ruffalo was roughed up and put in jail. Right. Yeah, yeah that's true. So, I mean, I just, I love it because it's, it's a timestamp and nothing really has changed. Yeah. I mean, you could write the next, the next portion of it and it would be just as entertaining because <laughs> it would have the same type of follies that we watched for an hour and a half. It would be know?
2: the next time Terry comes to to town. You can still count yeah. on me. And it would be a different <laughs> set of of uh mischief, but yeah. Yeah, I mean I I don't. Yeah, you're you're probably right. I just I try and I'm I'm trying to be more optimistic and I try and to think that they have at least a little bit more understanding of where the other is coming from. But ultimately that, that doesn't mean their behavior is going to change in, in any way. Right. I mean,
0: but, And I think that's why they are showing the sadness because they know nothing has really changed. Yeah. I mean, do they feel closer? They probably feel closer every time they get together. Just because that's nature. That's how people are. It's like, Oh, we saw each other for a couple of days. That'll last us until the next time we see each other for a couple of days, but nothing really changes. Yeah. I mean, he's going to go home to that girl and, they're still going to have the same trouble. What what trouble was it? Was she pregnant? We don't know.
2: Yeah, they know. They don't tell us. Yeah, they don't. He doesn't give we us any and answer I, answers. And I love that. I love yeah. that.
0: Like it, it, there's so much that's left to your own devices in this film, and I, I think it's cool that you it, it has a little bow on it for you. I think that's great. I I hope that my commentary that, doesn't ruin or take <laughs> that away from you. But I, mean, I honestly, I feel like they just didn't. I mean, nothing changed.
2: I I see it as more of a a, a baby step than a, like a you know I I and I think you get a little bit of that at the end of of Manchester by the Sea as well that like the Casey Affleck character and the Lucas Hedges yeah. character are maybe maybe starting to understand each other maybe their relationship will improve we don't know and it doesn't answer that for us so it's not it's not it ends with a a hopeful ellipsis not a period at the end of the sentence basically It's, it's kind of my right. thing. And so I like to imagine things will maybe marginally improve, but I mean, ultimately, we don't know. And then I think the not knowing is what makes it such a, a you know such a realistic ending, and in that way more satisfying than had he had this big you know epiphany and been like, "You're right, Sammy. From now on, things are going to be different." <laughs> um, that yeah. would have fall-, fall false with the the movie that we were watching the whole time. Um, so and it would have been you know the cop out Hollywood like sellout ending. Um, so I ultimately like the way it ends. It's just I I I like to think people can in, you know, make incremental steps. Um, but even even so, it doesn't mean that uh, yeah things aren't solved by the end of the credits. And I think that's you know frustrating because life is frustrating, but satisfying in that it it just feels true to the story. Lonergan's telling. Yeah. And
0: um. I, I mean, I I can't say enough about that ending, especially when. The kid gets on the bus. He does that little crinkle on his face like he's going to cry again. Yeah. And like, but then he holds it together because he doesn't want the kid to see it, you know. And then when he ultimately says his goodbye to Sammy, he's saying all the things that she wants to hear. She's accepting it like it's all going to be different. And that obviously there's growth between the characters in this film. Otherwise, we wouldn't have any kind of you know, anything to latch onto. I mean, yeah. I, so when I say things are exactly the same, they're clearly not. There's been emotional changes in the characters and there's, you know, Carrie knows the kid now. Like, so he has a reason to come back because he wasn't all that close with him before, uh, before this meeting. So, right.
2: but the of I mean, behavior will continue. Yeah, yeah, Of course.
0: Yeah.
1: Of course.
2: I feel like we've kind of, uh, Exhausted the the um, analysis here. Is there anything about you can count on me that we haven't talked about that you wanted to make sure we mention?
0: I can't think of anything uh, that we haven't really mentioned. Um, we mentioned pretty much all the characters in the film. Yeah. Um, and what they mean to the film.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah, and it, there's so many great scenes. I mean, turn turn it on at any point, and you're going to watch a great scene.
2: Yeah, pretty much, and, and I encourage people to check it out if if, like me they have heard about it because I remembered when you know I was watching the Oscars when she was nominated and I just never got a chance to never got around to it It was one of those movies that I have if I made a list of all the movies I've been meaning to get to I would never live I would never sleep or do anything else I'd just be catching up on movies that's one of the one of the great things about having this show is getting a chance having an excuse to finally catch up you know with some of these films that I've been meaning to watch for a while so thank you for bringing this one to the table
0: yeah yeah of course I guess there's one one thing that i i mean this is this is what movies mean to people mm-hmm. like i like i told you i can't really tell you why this movie is is just stuck in my head like one of my favorite things ever to exist on the planet but i was dating this girl once i said i, I got this movie I, I want you to check out so we watched it she didn't like it or not like it but she was like why did you show me that and i was just like all right I'm sad now. We're done. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, it's like, if you don't get it, you, you know, if you don't get it, that's okay. But, like, if you don't get that it means something to somebody else, then maybe, uh, you know, maybe we're not meant to be. Right. Uh, that kind of sucked, but, and I'll always have that memory, too. But, uh, I mean, that that stuff matters. If you had that ever happen to you, something like that, where you yeah. decided oh, yeah. to show somebody something, and I was just like, eh, I don't get it.
1: Yeah. No, I how mean, could
0: you not get
2: that? <laughs> and that's the, but that's see, that's the that's the great thing about any form of art, including cinema, is that it has that objectivity to it. And that's why when I have guests on the show, I encourage them to pick something of their own, pick one of their movies, because, you, you know, you get to know the guests by having them pick something that speaks to them and i think that's you know that's why you see these things on like film twitter all the time being like 10 movie like it's going around now 10 movies to get to know me or whatever because you put those together and it, and it it give it does give you some indication of the kind of person that it, that you are and that and that um the what you value in life or you know what you find interesting what you're drawn to naturally and and i think um no i think this was a great this was a great pick and one that hopefully listeners who haven't seen this will check out on Amazon Prime or wherever if they have to, to track it down because I think the performances and the writing are are uh, kind of next level and, you know, it's unfortunate that I feel like it's, in a lot of ways, kind of gotten forgotten by some people because I hadn't, no, yeah. you know, I, this is not one you ever hear really talked about.
0: No, I don't, well, I'm glad that you liked it. I mean, to me, just bringing it up and the fact that you watched it because of this, I, that means the world to me and I'm glad that you you get it. <laughs> they obviously took away some of the things that I took away from it as well. Yeah. Yeah. So that's absolutely. Cool. That's cool. Awesome.
2: So Dames Mars, can you tell people where they can find you on social media?
0: Yeah. Um, on Twitter, want to follow the CF3 podcast. Um, I'm on Twitter personally at, uh, at Caraveras Just how it sounds. K-A-R-A-V-A-R-U-S. Um, it's listed as Dames Mars, but um, they won't let me change it so uh, Dames Mars on Facebook CF3 on Facebook and yeah I'll be there I'll respond to you awesome
2: perfect well again thank you so much for coming on the show and getting me to finally watch you can count on me and uh, I have you marked down for the peanut butter falcon so next time we have you on we'll definitely talk about that one because that was another movie hey. much more recent that I also really enjoyed and I think there's a lot to dig into there as well
0: Yes, you can count on me.
2: Nice. <laughs> well done. <laughs> All right, thanks, James. Thanks a lot, my friend. If you're interested in joining me on the show to chat about one of your favorite films, head on over to crookedtable.com guest. Or you can consider supporting the show at patreon.com crookedtable. Of course, you can always find more podcasts, reviews, videos, and other movie-related goodies over at crookedtable.com. Until next time, this has been the Crooked Table Podcast, and I've been Rob.